here for the Y2K scare. Any of you re like remember that well? Um, yeah, some of you. Yeah. Um, did anybody wait for bated breath till midnight to see if all the computers crashed? Anybody do that? I literally did. I sat at my computer, like staring at it, like is it going to fall apart at midnight? If you're not aware, younger people, they were positive because every computer ever made had 19 built into the year that when it went to 2000, all the computers were going to revert to 1900 and it was going to blow up the economic system and all the utilities were going to shut off. We were positive that the whole world was going to crash. It didn't. Um, but now be honest here. How many of you stockpiled some, a little stuff? Anybody? Nobody? We didn't have anybody? Good. Um, uh, no shame if you did. Um, we have some good friends that literally filled their basement. They were so positive things were coming down. They, they filled their basement with water and dried goods and canned goods and survival supplies and all kinds of things. Um, I don't know if that was the beginning of the, the current kind of prepping um, craze, but um, this idea of getting ready for everything to fall apart um, is, is a weirdly popular concept in the world right now. Um, and I'm kind of a fence straddler. Like I'm, I certainly won't say that I don't uh, think on a fairly regular basis about what I would do if civilization started to fall apart. That does come into my head um, more often than I'd like to admit. But uh, I'm also uh, uh, don't know that I'm ready to stockpile food and supplies and things, but um, I, I don't even have a go bag. Anybody know what a go bag is? Anyone else familiar with the go bag? Yeah, several people have. Yeah. Um, if you weren't, a go bag is like a backpack or duffel bag um, or whatever that stays stocked with essentials uh, at all times um, and probably a little bit of cash um, just in case you need to take off in a second, like your go bag is ready. And I found out you can actually um, purchase a pre-made go bag at Amazon. Um, this one is about $41. Uh, and you can get it in a day. So I figured that, you know, that's go enough for me. You know, if things start to melt down, I'll order mine on Amazon and I'll go tomorrow. Like that's, I'll wait till tomorrow, then I'll go. Um, yeah, for $41, you get like a shovel and a hammer and a hatchet and a knife and a spork and a lantern and a flashlight, some paracord, a striker, some fish hooks, mylar sheathing you can either use as a blanket or a tent, a poncho, um, some medical supplies, a full first aid kit, and a garrote, you know, just in case. Um, all for $41, so I'm sure it's the highest quality stuff. Um, but go bags are kind of a fun joke in my house uh, because I have one particular son who he's not a full prepper, but uh, he definitely has fully stocked go bags for himself, his wife, and all of his kids at all times. Um, and my wife and I can't even like agree on what to take on a two-night stay at a hotel, so I don't know how in the world we'd ever pack a go bag. But, um, but I like the idea of a go bag this morning because we're kicking off uh, a new year that comes with a new word um, or focus word um, that God uh, gave me for 2024, and that word is go. Um, and this morning, along with kind of our new focus word, we're kicking off a brand new series that I think is important. Um, we're calling this series Before You Go. Um, and uh, because although a go bag is designed to be quick and ready and prepared for a moment's notice, they take a while to pack and prepare to get them perfect. I think a lot of thought and preparation, um, quite a lot of effort um, goes into to being ready to go. And so that's what um, I'm hoping to unpack for this six-week series before Lent. Um, and before we dive into the, the content of this series, um, which is going to be a little different style of preaching for me and very hypocritical, 
So you've got to know I'm a hypocrite going in. I don't preach what I'm good at. I preach what the Bible says. Um, if I only preached what I'd mastered, we'd run out of content really quick. Um, so I have to preach what the Bible says, whether I'm good at it or not. Um, but I do need to offer a caution in the form of a little bit of review. Does anybody remember us talking about the indicative imperative style of teaching that the Apostle Paul generally employed? Anybody remember that? If you don't, it simply means um, Paul always goes, this is what's true, and then this is how you respond to that truth. Um, Or this is what God says, this is what is. Here's how you should think and live in light of that. He always, there's always a turning point in most of his general letters where he just tells you what the gospel is. And then he tells you there'll be a switch, and then from there on it's how you behave in light of that gospel. I had a teacher once tell me that the gospel is like a drop of water falling. The vertical always comes first. The, the drop falls in a straight line up and down, and then when it hits earth, um, its intended target, it flattens out horizontally and splashes outward onto all kinds of other things. But the vertical always precedes the horizontal. Um, in fact, that same kind of indicative imperative model um, seems to have existed in the metaphor of the ancient tabernacle. We talked about this in our Roman series. Um, the, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. It was the only time all year he went into the Holy of Holies, which is clear out here at the other end of the, of the tabernacle. This was a really big deal. It was in this service that the entire community... Um, uh, would be at risk if he didn't go um, into the Holy of Holies uh, because the, 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 in that presence, in the Holy of Holies, the presence of the Holy of Holies, the priest would not only confess and atone for the community's sins for the past year, but he would speak a blessing over the upcoming year. So the entire community depended on this. Um, but before the priest could go, um, he had to start clear back at the gate and, and he would confess his own sins and then he would move from there to the altar. And at the altar, he'd make sacrifices for his own personal sins. And then he would move to the laver, which is the next step. And he would, um, here he would clean himself up and remove all the evidence of those sacrifices that were made on, on his behalf. And then he would move into the holy place. Um, and, and once inside the tent, the priest would worship and honor God for all that God has done. The room was full of all of these reminders of God's goodness and his aid um, uh, to the people of Israel and the, and the priests would use all these reminders to, to worship and praise God. And up to this point, everything that the priest did was vertical. It was between him and God. No priest would dare enter the Holy of Holies until he had cleansed himself thoroughly. It was very dangerous to do that. Um, we found that out in, uh, when, when uh, uh, Aaron's two sons tried to go in you know, in a bad manner and they were both killed immediately. So no priest would go in there until he was cleansed. So everything up to this point is between him and God. He wants to make sure he's right before he goes in there. So every step so far is vertical. Um, And then when he gets into the Holy of Holies, the last step of the tabernacle, um, only now does his shift, does his, his focus shift horizontal. Only now does he pray and bless the people. And from that point on, it's not about him. It's about him being a blessing to the community. And I say all this to say um, that, uh, that that territory, that's the territory we're about to, to enter into, the horizontal stuff. This is all presuming we're good on the vertical, okay? This is assuming we understand Romans, and we know that we're at peace with God. See, we're about to fill our go bag 
Um, and, and we're talking about the things that we need if we're going to go. More specifically and less metaphorically, we're talking about stuff that we need to think about if we're going to share the gospel. If we're going to advance the kingdom and be a testimony of love and the goodness of Jesus um, in the world. This is not about your salvation. This is, this is about advancing God's kingdom, sharing the gospel. This is not about your relationship with God. And if you confuse the vertical and the horizontal in this equation, you can make your life miserable. You can make your relationship with God miserable. Because God saved you. Messy, sinful, hot mess you. And that's the exact person whom God loves, and there is no conditions to that love. God doesn't offer that love with a giant if. I love you if. He loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you, to save you. That just, that's just what is. And I can't, you can't do anything to add or take away from that kind of love. It's a gift that's just given to you. But your neighbor, your coworker, your child, your parent, they are not God. They judge you and will continue to judge you. And if that was it, that'd be fine. But they, would all, they also judge God and the church and the gospel based on you. So all the stuff we're about to dive into isn't stuff we need to do to please God or win his favor or somehow hang on to our salvation. We're talking about the stuff that makes us more likely to be able to reach that neighbor, that coworker, that child, that parent. Which could beg the question, why? Why do I have to change my behavior for my neighbor? Why do I have to put forth effort for my coworker? Sim- uh, the, the simple answer is it's our job. When Jesus was ascending to his father, he didn't tell his disciples to stay faithful to church. They did, but, but he didn't say that was the main job. He didn't tell them the, the, to, to do as, as much as they could to avoid sin. They did, but again, not the job description. He didn't tell them to read their Bibles. Again, they did. What Jesus said was this. So Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus told his disciples to go to the neighbor, to the coworker, to the child, to the parent. So we aren't talking about ways to make God happy or win his love. We're talking about ways to join the mission, to do the job that Jesus called us to do. And my thesis for this, simple, for this series is simple, and honestly, this is probably the foundation for our entire year. But the thesis is this. Your life is the best tool for evangelism in your go bag. Sharing the gospel is not a speech you memorize. And I hope I don't hurt any feelings here, but it's also not even ABCs in a gospel track. And I'm not saying those things are bad, and I'm certainly not saying the Holy Spirit can't use them to save souls. He can. What I am saying is that sharing the gospel, truly sharing the gospel and making disciples can't be something we do. It has to be something we are. Francis of Assisi said it this way, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. So we share the gospel and we make disciples because that's what Jesus told us to do. 
And the way we do that involves how we live. And this is a really important distinction because it's one of the most common questions you get if you talk about grace. The real grace of God. The reaches through the darkness and filth of sin to save sinners' grace of God. The, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus' grace of God. When you talk about that grace of God, people will always say, so what, you can just sin as much as you want and God's grace will cover it? Then why change? Then, then why not just sin? Why does the Bible tell us not to sin? And the answer to that question is deeply wrapped in our purpose. And more importantly, our sense of purpose. See, if your only purpose is to be with God, it's just about you and God, and that's it, then sin all you want. You're not going to shock God. He's a big God. He knows how to handle sinners. He's reached much further than you to save sinners. If, if it's just about you and God, it, it doesn't matter because you were a sinner when he saved you and, and there was no if attached to it. But listen, if you wake up in the morning and you feel purpose, if you wake up and you know in your bones that the great commission to make disciples of all nations is a call on your life and it's part of the reason you're walking the earth, and you know that your life is the best tool for fulfilling your purpose, then all of a sudden you have reasons to stop sinning. You have a motivation to obey the Bible because sin and, and disobedience is a roadblock to your purpose. You can't do what you know in your guts you've been called to do if your life is a hot mess with sin. So suddenly obedience isn't a way to earn favor from God. It's a way to fulfill your God-given purpose. All of this to say, over the next six weeks, I'm going to be digging into us. I'm going to be asking some hard questions and drawing some hard lines. And, and if I ask a hard question and you feel pushed and challenged or maybe even convicted, I'm not saying you're a bad Christian. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying anything about your relationship with God. None of this is about that. I'm going to be outlining some of the things that I think are important to help us go. Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, and that includes us. And your life is your best tool for evangelism in your go bag. So what does that mean? What does it mean that our life is our best tool? Well, one of the scriptures that, that I will no doubt um, bring up over and over again in this series is this. I mean, this is the great apostle Paul speaking. He said, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. This is so super rich. And to get it, we have to go backwards. We have to read the verse backwards. What Paul saw himself doing here in this message is imitating Christ. That's what, that was his motivation for this whole passage. It, which is so important because if, if you miss that, um, this verse sounds totally differently. And it can even sound a little inauthentic. Like, like Paul is saying he has no real convictions. He just does whatever makes people happy. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul says that his life is lived imitating Christ. In other words, what Paul says he's doing here is this. He says, I, I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many can be saved. He's saying that that is how Jesus lived. 
In other words, this isn't a strategy. This isn't a campaign. This isn't a program. This is simply Paul trying to be like Jesus. Paul looked at the life of Jesus. He said, Jesus did, did not do what was best for himself. He left the comforts of heaven and entered our mess. And then he walked that mess all the way to the cross for one reason and one reason only, that others might be saved. So with that model in mind, Paul looks at his own life and his own behavior, and suddenly the why behind the things he does totally changed. It was no longer because I like doing it this way. It was no longer, this is who I am, take it or leave it. No longer was he compelled to say, I do this because this is what the Bible says to do. All the millions of reasons that we do the things we do just got trumped with one look into the life of Jesus. And suddenly Paul finds new purpose for making decisions. And if you read this entire chapter, he's talking about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, what you say, just all the ordinary choices in life. And please don't miss the purpose here. The purpose is so clear. This is what I spent the first half of this uh, message talking about. He said, so that many may be saved. This is not Paul earning favor from God. This is not about works. This is not even necessarily about obeying the Bible. This is about evangelism. This is about sharing the gospel. This is, this is what it looks like to share the gospel and advance the kingdom of God. It's about saying, how can I put my desires aside and make it as easy as possible for someone to find their way to Jesus? And then Paul says something that I've, I've never been comfortable with, ever. He says, so you should imitate me as I imitate Christ. <laughs> what kind of weird confidence does it take to write those words? I have trouble, like, I have no, normally I say, don't imitate me, imitate Christ. Like, that's usually my, my shtick. I've said those exact words a lot. Don't do what I do, follow Christ. What Paul says is, is that, and this is what we're going to wrestle with with this entire series, is, hey, if you want to see what it looks like to follow Jesus, if you want to see what a real Christian looks like, if you want someone to imitate since it's really hard to imitate how Jesus managed his social media. It's really hard to, to figure out how Jesus managed so many streaming services. So if, you, so if you don't know how to do that, you need someone to imitate, imitate me. That's what Paul said. That's not what I'm saying. Follow me for a week. When I'm at church, do what I do. When I'm in traffic, negotiate the frustration the way I do. Use the fingers I use. When I'm dealing with my kids, use the tone of voice I use. When you're all alone and no one around, scroll as much as I scroll. Read what I read. Watch what I watch. Listen to what I listen to. Hang out with the people I hang out with. How gutsy of a statement is that? And the weird part for me to wrap my, my mind around is that no one understood the gospel better than Paul. No one could have explained the ins and outs of all the theology better than Paul. No one could have answered all the difficult philosophical questions people come up with better than Paul. No one could have done apologetics better than Paul. And even though Paul had all of this academic capacity when it came down to how you should live so that many may be saved, Paul understood that his life 
was the best tool for evangelism in his go bag. He didn't resort to debates and answering complex questions and apologetics. Paul trusted that his life would do all the preaching that was needed. I don't have to argue, just do what I do. And what did that look like in Paul's life? When he was leaving the Ephesian church, Paul said this. He said, remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and the many tears for you. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he set apart for himself. I've never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked and supplied my own needs and even the needs of those who were with me. I have been a constant example of how you can help those uh, in need by working hard. Paul said, I'm leaving you, but you watched me for three years. You saw my comings, you saw my goings, you saw me during the day, you saw me at night, you saw me in work, you saw me in relationships, and most of all, you saw me in service to others. Just do that. Just do what I did. Just imitate me. He basically said the same thing to the Thessalonians, and, and this one's important because according to the book of Acts, Paul didn't get to stay with this church for very long. He didn't have three, they didn't have three years of Paul's teachings to fall back on. So when Paul wrote them, he said this, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and who don't follow the traditions they receive from us. For you know you ought to imitate us. For we were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Don't know how you should live? Don't feel like you got a deep enough theological foundation in the short time that I was there? Just imitate me and my team, and you'll be good. To the Philippians, he wrote, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Paul used his life to serve as evidence an example to his protege, Timothy. He said, but Timothy certainly, or, but you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach, how I live, what my personal life is, or my, what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from it. And Paul goes on to encourage Timothy to advance the kingdom the exact same way with his example, with his life. He says, don't let anyone think of you because you, uh, think less of you because you're young. Be an example to all believers in what to say, how you, uh, the way you live, your love, your, pure, your faith, your purity. He tells his disciple Titus the same basic thing. He says, and you yourself must be a, an example to them by doing good, or by doing good works of every kind. Let everyone, uh, everything you do reflect the integrity and, and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that you, your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose you will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about you. Bottom line is this. How we live affects our ability to share the gospel and advance the kingdom. It just does. It's that simple. Paul doesn't tell his students to live godly lives or they may go to hell. That's been settled. That, that's not on the table. But Paul does caution them passionately to think about the examples they're setting. Think about the way their lives are preaching. Are they living the kind of lives where, where they can tell people to imitate them? 
if they want to know what the Christian life looks like? So what does that mean for us? We're going we're gonna to spend five more weeks um, asking a series of questions to shine light into the corners of our lives and, and see if we're truly allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform us. And we're not doing this out of fear or guilt or some kind of social pressure. No, we want to be transformed by the gospel so that we can be an example to lead others to Jesus. So I don't want, I don't want to, to give away what we're going to be talking about from now to Lent, but, but please know that, that we need to take a look in the mirror and ask ourselves if we are ready to tell people to imitate us as we imitate Christ. And if we aren't ready to do that, then, then before we go, we need to get ready. How do we respond to this? Our world um, is a mess. I don't know if you know this. Uh, might be news. Um, when I was a fairly new believer 30 years ago, um, over 30 years ago, you know, we used to talk about knowing your identity in Christ. Like you have to know your identity in Christ. Um, and that was a challenge, you know. Today it feels like we're doing good if we just help people have enough natural identity to know what bathroom to use. Like that's that's going a long way. Um, and that's not even necessarily a joke. It's, a, it's, a, it's painful to imagine having so little grasp on your identity. Um, I feel like we sit on a powder keg of division and barely restrained rage in our country. Every single numbing behavior for coping with pain, anxiety, and depression is off the charts. All of them from drinking to drugs to gambling to shopping to sex to eating and the worst part is anxiety and depression are still rising exponentially every year. It'd be one thing if numbing behaviors were going up and depression was going down, but that's not the case. It's the opposite. Numbing behaviors going up and depression is just getting worse. Our economy's a mess. The world is full of wars and rumors of worlds, and it just feels like everyone is making an unprecedented grab for power in the midst of this whole mess, and we all see it. Our kids are under attack, maybe like never before. Every tantalizing worldview and opinion has direct access to our kids through, me, through tech right now. Like it used to be if they wanted to put a message in a show, they had to think about the fact that the mom and dad are going to be, if not watching the show, in the kitchen listening to it. Never before have they had direct access into our kids' brains like they do now. Now the kids pick up the tech and they can say whatever they want to them. I feel like this is, that's a pretty much brand new phenomenon in the war over our kids' hearts and minds. Our world, and I'm not speaking just generically and metaphorically, I'm talking about your friends, your coworkers, your families, the people you rub shoulders with are hurting. They're sick and broken, and we have the answer. We have the cure. How dare we... Um, head into this ward and not be ready to share the cure. But if we're going to go, if we're going to be a help, if we're going to truly reach out to a hurting people, if we're going to make a difference, we need to get comfortable with two realities. First, we need to get good at sharing our faith. And I'm not talking about preaching at people. Um, I'm not talking about reciting a, 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 a litany 
But we need to get comfortable with talking about the things of God. And as Paul put it, not being ashamed of the gospel. Being comfortable talking about what God has done in our lives. And before we need to go, we need to load our go bag. We need to look at our own lives and embrace the transformation that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. Right now, if you are healthy and, and you're peculiar, if you have joy and meaning and hope, you're an oddball. If you experience peace in your life and you actually, you're actually put together a little bit, you will stand out so much that people will ask what's different about you. There's nothing more countercultural and rebellious right now than being healthy. Mentally, emotionally, physically healthy. There's nothing more rebellious. You want to be a rebel? Be healthy. Be joyful. Be hopeful. Be peaceful and loving. This is the true wild rebellion of our day. And there's just no better tool for evangelism than a healthy, strong, purposeful life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's our prayer. Make us an example to follow God. The world needs us to get our stuff together so that we can help. We need to rise up and answer the call. So the way that I'd love to respond to this message is with two things. First, reestablish in your heart that you are at peace with God. If you need to go back and listen to some of the Roman series, especially chapter 5, um, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This is not about that. If you go into this series and you come out feeling guilty every time, like, like you and God are not okay, then you're missing something. You and God are okay. Like Get that in your guts. Get that in your guts. And if not, go back and drill that. This is not about your relationship with God. Second, Pray that the Holy Spirit makes you receptive to conviction. Don't get defensive. Don't be argumentative. Anywhere the Holy Spirit pokes you with a goad, lean into that. That's a good thing. Man, if the Holy Spirit's like, hey, I think if you dealt with this, you might be healthier. My goodness, deal with it. Like, lean into that. Don't run from conviction. It's not a bad thing. We've mixed up conviction and guilt, and like nobody wants to feel guilty. Nobody wants to walk out of church feeling like, oh, I'm terrible. That's not what this is. This is, the Holy Spirit cares about me enough to want to make me healthier. I'm in. Like, lean into conviction. Receive that. It's a good thing. Don't run. Embrace the conviction and watch the Holy Spirit do a work in you. So those are our things. Number one, know, know, know that you and God are at peace. Jesus Christ came to establish that. Own it. And number two, don't run from conviction. Don't let the, this weird social pressure or guilt become a weight. This is, this is a, a challenge to get healthy, and the Holy Spirit will help you. Amen? Let's go to the table.